Welcome to the Spiritually Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Parsons. Today, I want to talk about purity culture. Now, you're probably thinking, do we really need heterosexual men or cisgender men talking about how purity culture can be hurtful to other men? To be fair, I strongly agree with the need for the many voices of women to amplify how toxic purity culture can be. We need these voices, especially the voices of Sheila Gregor, Sarah Bessie, Kristen Dumay, Beth Allison Barr, and Amy Bird. For some men, especially men who have been having struggles with relationships and sexual dysfunction, both emotionally and physically, I know this will be something we need to talk about. I'm not doing this to say, men are being harmed too, or not all men are abusers, or women need to hear our side of the story. And if you're listening and don't identify as a cisgender male like I do, you have permission to dismiss what I'm about to say. You can call me out on things, and just let me know what kind of blind spots I've actually encountered but haven't acknowledged. And I have no right to mansplain. But I want to be vulnerable about my own past with purity culture. I'm releasing these episodes in the beginning with the intent that I can help those who I can talk to who have been damaged and spiritually abused like I have. I'm doing this because if we as Canadian progressive Christian men don't deal with the damage of purity culture head on, we're going to keep hurting women, the LGBTQ community, and non-binary folks with the values we picked up as cisgender men in purity culture from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Not dealing with the trauma and suffering will still allow the spread of assault, abuse, harassment, domination, control, and other forms of toxic masculinity to continue. Having said that, I think the best place to begin is to say that for the longest time I was in denial of the fact that some of the toxic preaching around sexuality in churches had negative effects on everyone. It was why when I used to be a Christian hip-hop artist, I would never sing or rap about sex. I would never discuss it because I felt it was always something that only women would face. The only thing we talked about as guys was how to stop masturbating. That was it. I didn't know that this infantilization, for lack of a better term, was wrong, not just for women, but for men as well. I didn't know that the way men thought of women in the church was extremely flawed and damaging. Looking back on my own life and how hard it was for me to even form an ideology surrounding relationships and sexuality, I realized that purity culture does affect many men, including myself. Purity culture itself has affected my romantic relationships, well, lack thereof, and without going into my wife's side of the story or giving confidential details, it even has some effects on my marriage today. It's affected how I understand myself sexually, and it's affected how I understand how relationships work. The only way I can describe that effect is to tell my own story of how purity culture has infected my own life and the churches I attended. I want to begin by going over some Patriarchy 101 before jumping in. Some of you listeners may have heard this before, but it has to be said and reinforced again and again. Patriarchy surrounds the idea that straight men are superior than everyone else. To those with patriarchal views, girls, women, neurodiverse, LGBTQ, asexuals, etc. are considered weaker, flawed, and inferior to straight men. In certain churches, toxic masculinity and purity culture holds onto the maxim that domination and power are the virtues to uphold. 
Control and security are standards to strive for as men and authority figures. When men apply the systems, ethics, and the mindset of purity culture to their lives, they become a danger to themselves and to the people around them. When men in purity culture bring these values to various environments within society, it more than likely results in abuse, anger, and trauma. Now let's jump into a bit of my testimony. I grew up in the church. I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was five. I got baptized in a swimming pool in a house church when I was eight. I participated in youth group, went on retreats, played in the church youth band when I was 16 and 17, and at 17, I composed Christian hip-hop. And in my young adult years, I attended a big mega church. And if you live in Winnipeg, I'm not going to mention the name of that church because given the controversy it went through last year, it's going to get me in some trouble. Throughout my time in church, I learned about sex when I was 11, and days after that, I learned that premarital sex is wrong, along with pretty much everything from masturbating, porn, oral, and what my youth leaders call heavy petting. And my house grew up with the book I Kissed Dating Goodbye, a book retracted by the author and ex-evangelical Joshua Harris. My sister courted a young man from the big megachurch I attended. My parents had to be in my house whenever girls came over. You get the idea of what's going on here. In some churches, you weren't allowed to have a sexual thought, but in my case, we had to do something called taking our thoughts captive whenever a sexual thought entered our mind. One technique that I was taught to do by one young adult leader in this big mega church was to pray for my mom whenever a sexual thought came into my head. Because according to this pastor, a sane person would never lust after his own mother. If they don't lust after their own mother and they start praying for her, the sexual thought will be taken captive and the arousal will disappear. Even though I scuffed at the idea of courting instead of dating back when I was a teenager, I knew that if I were to be pure and without fault in the eyes of God, any sexual act or lust between me and another woman would result in the loss of that purity. Sexual purity was part of being a Christian ever since I was a teenager. While I wouldn't push my beliefs on others in high school, I would still try and date, but I was looking for someone to spend my life with. I thought I would get married at 18 to a girl if I dated them all through high school, and if I waited, the sex would be amazing once we tied the knot and went to college or university. That's how sheltered I was when it came to sex and relationships. Sadly, while I was trying to do what I can to study my Bible, do my homework, compose hip-hop, talk to friends about God, and all the other things Christians would do, I felt guilty all the time in my teen years and almost became part of an incel. This was not only due to living in a strict Christian household where courting was the standard for relationships, but I felt like the battle for my mind was always a losing one. I felt guilty because whenever I looked at girls in high school, my hormones would take over and I couldn't take all the overwhelming thoughts captive. I couldn't submit my thoughts to Christ because there were too many of them to try and take captive to submit. All I could think about was figuring out who to ask out at the end of the day and then feeling guilty when she rejected me. It even got to the point where I thought I lusted or committed adultery when a woman talked to me at school. That guilt led me through depression, along with all the other things teenagers struggled with during high school. While most men who grew up in purity culture struggled with this, I learned other harmful beliefs that also influenced purity culture in itself. To share one of the first harmful beliefs I learned in purity culture, 
I believe I should start with my first heavy infatuation with a girl in junior high. I had a thing for a girl named Lexi. She was a year younger, and while I was in school, I tried to connect with her friends. Her friends thought I was interesting, and I told them that I thought Lexi was interesting. We met in person, talked for a bit, and then the next day she told me that we should not have talked and we should not be friends. I went home sad that day and was stuck lying in my bed for three whole hours. I couldn't function the rest of the day. I couldn't get my homework done, and in my mind, I wanted to do whatever I can to get Lexi to like me. I tried to do things to impress her. I wrote her love letters. I gave her a cute rabbit doll for Christmas. I did everything to win her over except for one thing. Just simply be her friend. Get to know her. And if she rejects me, just move on with life. Back then, teachers thought what I was doing was cute. Teachers thought, hey, boys will be boys. And when they do this kind of stuff, it's just, it's just funny. But Lexi and her friends hated every minute of me doing this stuff. And today, with all the Me Too stuff coming out and church abuse scandals making mainstream headlines, my pursuit of Lexi would be now considered borderline stalking and even possibly criminal, and not just creepy or a complete turnoff, but criminal. I couldn't explain exactly why the way I attempted dating relationships was harmful at the time. But recently, a Twitter tweet had come out in November, and I found it really interesting. Tim Keller posted a quote that said, Jesus cannot simply be liked. You either must reject him utterly or crown him king of your life. Tim, if you listen to this podcast, which most likely you've shut off if you have, let me ask you some questions. When your wife first met you, did she automatically trust you? Did you pursue her a day or even a week after you met her, and did she appreciate you telling her how much you loved her even though you two only knew each other for a short time? Did she automatically desire for you to talk to her the first time you both connected? Did she automatically pine for you to protect her from what she was afraid of in life after you two just first met? And outside of flaky prophecy, did she automatically see the two of you living a long life together? Did she completely agree with the theology you had? Or did she reject you once and you had to chase her again? Or did you push her away when she did or said or prayed something you didn't like or agree with and then she wanted you back? You see where I'm going with this? The problem with either loving or rejecting someone as absolutes is twofold. It leaves an elephant in the room which asks, what would it mean to someone to let Jesus, a husband, or someone in authority be king in your life? The other question it asks is why someone in power has to define in absolutes what it means to be a king, a husband, or the head of a company or a household. Keller's tweet is the language of spiritual abuse. That language allows power and control to be held by the hands of an influential someone who quote-unquote has all the answers. And when a man has been in a toxic leadership role for a long time, claiming that black and white submission is a hard habit to break. Tim Keller's view of a healthy relationship with God is one where the bride of Christ sees God or Jesus the groom and instantly she has to fall in love with him or completely reject him. Which mirrors what I was taught when it comes to relationships between men and women that are healthy. In a healthy marriage relationship, Women automatically fall in love in submission to a man. See how disgusting this is? 
Why does this matter when it comes to my story of chasing Lexi? Because someone in church told me when I was very young that just because I'm a boy, a girl will either cling to me when I declare my love to her or completely reject me like a monster at first. But if I have Jesus in my heart and keep trying to pursue a girl with my love, any girl I have feelings for will eventually fall for me if I continue to love her. This kind of toxic teaching stuck with me on a subconscious level. And that kind of love only pushed Lexi away eventually. It also had her parents file for a restraining order as well. It took me more than a decade to unlearn this. Women do not normally do certain things like fall for a guy instantly. Women gradually go from liking to loving a man the more they spend time together. What I wish I was taught when I was young was that a relationship with God as a spiritual being is not like a relationship between a teenage boy and a girl. It's not twilight. In a healthy environment, teens get to know each other before going on dates. They break up but still feel love while confusing infatuation with a willingness to die for another person. A relationship with God is a journey where the heart that knows God continues to know him more and more to the point where that love actually blossoms much later in that journey. In both cases, every individual in a relationship party needs to get to know each other before trusting, committing, and even agreeing on the same page with each other before sharing and participating in vulnerable, intimate moments together. Every healthy relationship starts with a bumpy road of understanding and building trust with each other. A healthy relationship with God is not only built on things like trust and commitment, but faith as well. And faith comes by hearing what God has to say, which is part of understanding and building trust. The point is that no matter what happens, a woman will subconsciously never and should never fully crown a man as king over them. And part of the reason that is, is because a woman is always continually getting to know her partner, just like the bride of Christ is always getting to know Jesus. There is no head of the house. Husbands should not make the final decision in certain things. In a healthy relationship, both parties have to work together to move from continually liking each other to fully loving each other much later in life. Before I close off today, one of the teachings that purity culture pushes on women is that they need to hate their physical bodies. Girls and women are encouraged to be pure and modest because they're considered the gatekeepers of sexual purity. They have to have certain body parts covered. If anyone listening has read Rachel Held Evans' Searching for Sunday, her experience with purity culture had her refer to parts of her physical body as stumbling blocks. Women and girls in purity culture, they can't wear bikinis, they can't wear short skirts, they can't wear tank tops, and in some places, they can't even wear sleeveless shirts. In some churches, women can't even flirt or flip their hair or even put their hands over their chest in public. I mean, these stupid rules, they cause women in church to see their bodies as shameful. These standards cause women, girls, and even those with other genders or sexual orientations to see themselves as individuals who will lead men and even each other into sexual sin. And as a result, they will become impure in the eyes of God. Purity culture says that certain people are impure because they will keep heterosexual men from being sexually pure according to standards of certain evangelical and conservative churches. And how does all these rules affect men? Men hate their minds, and they probably hate their eyes, and they hate their penises. Yeah, I said it.
when I was a teenager, and even when I was a young adult in this huge mega church with rich young adult women dressing up with perfect makeup, shiny smiles, and beautiful long dresses, and shirts that covered up everything but brought out their shape, I was angry with the places my mind went to. I wanted to be blind. I hated that my mind led me to what I thought was lust and adultery. I hated feeling like God will never love me or accept me because I couldn't control my physical desires. I sometimes wanted to tell my doctor to turn me into a eunuch or castrate me or something. I mean, if my sex drive was physically stopped, I wouldn't have to deal with my disgusting hormones or flesh. For me, that hatred of my mind and my body it thankfully didn't cause me to hate myself as a person, but it did cause me to view my sexuality as this monster that wanted to get out of its cage. It gave me this idea that if I just took a girl out on a date, I could give that monster some food while reassuring it that the cage it's in will be unlocked someday. Or if I concentrate on something else, I could eventually starve that monster to death. And yet when I did that, the monster only got more vicious, and then I would feel like a sexual predator, which would encourage me to stay away from other women and do this thing called bouncing my eyes to stop staring at them. Earlier in the episode, I stated my intention for recording this. I'm not trying to feel sorry for myself. I'm not trying to say that my trauma matters, especially in comparison to many women who experience trafficking, molestation, and rape. I'm telling this part of my story for the men who struggled to be sexually pure in an environment where it was impossible. We know how harmful this stuff is. We want to make things right, and we want to have another chance at developing healthier masculinity. While I can't speak for the other men in my life who left purity culture, I'm continually working through my own masculinity so that I can develop healthier characteristics of manhood such as kindness, courage, and strength, along with other fruits of the spirit such as patience, faithfulness, generosity, and yes, much needed self-control over our bodies and minds without hating ourselves or our physical desires for sex. Anyway, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Spiritually Challenged, and I also want to thank Bradley Onishi from Straight White American Jesus for inspiring me to do this series. God bless you, stay in touch, peace. Welcome to the Spiritually Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Parsons. Two things, I'm recording in the middle of a blizzard, so if you hear noises, that might be the heater or the wind blowing outside. The other thing is that this comes with a bit of a trigger warning, as some heavy sexual content with some mature themes will be discussed. Today, I'm continuing with my series on how purity culture harms men, and how that harm spreads to its community. If you have the time, please listen to the previous episode that's linked in the show notes. The last episode focused on some harmful relationship and sexual beliefs I picked up, which caused me to hate myself and my mind as I pushed through every man's battle. My focus today is going to be on purity culture cruelties, created paradoxes, and how these ideas are connected to toxic masculinity and purity culture. 
If you're not sure what I'm getting at, the evangelical Christianity I grew up with after 2004 had defining characteristics, standards, and ethics that formed their view of masculinity. There's a certain conception of masculinity which contains unwritten and unexplained rules which defined what it means to be a man when you go to conservative Christian churches. I lived in a town called Brandon in western Manitoba from 2009 to 2012. I attended a Pentecostal church called Bethel and was mentored by a young adult Canadian corporal from the town's army base. I had a great relationship with some of the guys in the army because not only were they fun and easygoing, but they were also very cultured and understood urban art, video games, and fandom compared to the rural young adults who understood farming, football, hockey, and mechanics. I remember one of those young adult group lessons I was part of, where Corporal let's just call him Donnie, took all the guys into a room, not only to discuss sexuality, but to figure out what his fellow men thought Christian virtue was. He put the question forward and told us that he knew a lot of us were hockey and rough riders football enthusiasts, and he wondered how Christian virtue would be displayed when playing sports. I decided to take a bite and share what I thought was the right answer, because I used to play volleyball in high school. I told Donnie that part of being a good sport was being gentle, forgiving, kind, while having an opponent-teammate relationship that integrates the love and care of Christ. Corporal Donnie was like, sure Aaron, that's pretty cool and it's all good, but the best thing to do as a Christian man is to do what you can to win. You have to play as hard as you can, you have to perform your best, you have to vanquish your opponent, and you have to show your team that you're a man who does all he can and never gives up. You must be the kind of man who is aggressive, assertive, and do everything for yourself and your team so that you'll be victorious for Christ. Now you probably understand what I'm getting at here. Donnie indicated that, sure, yeah, gentleness, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit, they're good values to have, but to really be a man for Christ, the values to prioritize are aggression, winning, victory, and authority. To Donnie, and most of the men in this group, especially if they were in the army, that's what it means to be a man of God. And there you go. We got ourselves a sense of evangelical masculinity. This kind of rhetoric comes from John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. In the book, Eldridge says we are born to be knights, soldiers, and wild berserker adventurers. Now, I'm a retro gamer, so I have to use this video game metaphor. One of the reasons why Super Mario and many first-person shooters like Doom are so popular with men is because we all can be the adventuring trigger-happy gunner or plumber who can stomp on mushrooms with angry eyes. We can kick monstrous turtles with wings, and in the end, we can rescue the princess from castles full of burning lava, and we can beat the big bad spiked Koopa named Bowser. Eldridge claims that all men need to have these aggressive values like Super Mario or the other video game heroes. James Dobson, one of the founders of the Christian Rights Family Discourse and also one of the most influential evangelicals of the 20th century, he states that ever since they're toddlers, little boys like to jump off play structures, build Lego stuff, and then destroy them with Tonka trucks, and they like to attack animals. Dobson indicates that from the time a man is a boy to the time he is a man in his sexual prime, a man is a forceful creature who is naturally aggressive and out of control. 
And because a man is as aggressive and forceful as he is, Dobson believes that a man's destiny is to rule over something and to dominate it. If a man doesn't fit any of these characteristics as a leader in a church or another leadership setting that upholds toxic masculinity, he doesn't deserve that dominance. Corporal Donnie wrote a book for the Dobson Eldridge Christian Manosphere Space, if you want to call it that. He wrote a book called Path of a Warrior, which tells his story about how he applied some of these masculine principles while he served his second term in Afghanistan. He was helpful in setting the standard for some of the toxic teachings of Christianity in Western Manitoba 12 years ago. So this leads us to the question, what does it really mean to be a man in the sexual sense according to Corporal Donnie Dobson and John Eldridge? Before moving into the answer, according to all three of these men that I used to admire, to be a man means to be a rescuer, a conqueror, a victor, and someone who, and sorry for the language here, he's supposed to be a badass. Men have to be an earthly savior, just like Jesus, but also they need to be adventurous and to put someone who is weaker in their place. And if they can't do it with other people, they have to at least be able to conquer the devil. But when a man is given complete and total freedom without any kind of values, rules, or guidelines, or moral code to hold him accountable, that man is aggressive to the point of borderline abusive and damaging to everyone around him. And this is from Eldridge and Dobson, but how I frame this concept leads me to how they view sexuality. According to them, a man as a sexual being always has this identity as a monster with pure, feral, untamed ferociousness. This is why Eldridge called his book Wild at Heart, because to him, the monster is who men really are. To Eldridge and Dobson, men are aggressive sexual animals, and their primary objective is to be satisfied sexually. When men read their books, the monster that Eldridge and Dobson talk about becomes who men are in these evangelical spaces and conservative churches. Eldridge and Dobson state that the only way to tame the monster within every man is to have a relationship with God so men can take their thoughts captive and build resilience and not give in to sexual temptation to have premarital relations or masturbate or do other unspeakable things that may cause some of my listeners to turn this episode off. But the other solution is to tame the monster by marrying a godly wife and keeping that monster fed by filtering sexual desires and filtering sexual expression into what evangelicals view as pure sexuality between a husband and wife in marriage. A therapist named Kyle J. Howard puts it this way, It seems to me most Western Christian literature on marital sex could be summed up in the following way. Worldly sex objectifies women unrighteously, but Christian sex should objectify women righteously. In other words, the prevailing philosophy of sex within Christendom, especially in published works such as Wild at Heart, seemed to be, premarital sex is sin, pornography is sin, But once a woman is made a wife, she should aspire to be her husband's very own personal porn star. Now stick with me here. This is probably the best way that Cal describes how harmful Eldridge and Dobson's writings are. As a man who has seen how purity culture can be damaging, 
A spouse having to play the role of a porn star in a marriage not only causes a woman to feel sexually and spiritually abused, but from a man's perspective, when a husband in a marriage has the intent of feeding the sexual monster that's part of him, thanks to the teachings of purity culture, his need for intimacy from his wife is not met, even if she gives herself to him with the intention of showing how much she selflessly loves him. And the sex is not satisfactory for both of them at all. So let's put the pieces together. Boys and men in churches are taught that to be a real man, you must be assertive, victorious, aggressive, and borderline destructive. You need to be able to cast out demons, dominate Satan, and have some kind of dominant leadership or influential role since we live in a time where you cannot kill the dragon or save the princess. And when it comes to sexuality, men are taught they are predatory and out-of-control animals that need to be tamed by Christ or a wife. These two teachings, they sharpen each other the way iron sharpens iron. But which came first? Which is the cause and which is the effect? Which is the egg and which one is the chicken? See, if one views a man as a sexual monster who is out of control and his only goal is sexual release, then it makes sense that a conquering and ravaging sexuality is shown through values of aggression, violence, destruction, and adventure. That sexuality is rendered into an accepted form of evangelical masculinity. Another way to look at this is to see a man as an aggressive, victorious, buff knight in shining armor who's always out on a dangerous mission. You know, it makes sense that man's sexuality, it matches the standard of evangelical manhood, and he not only desires adventure, but he also desires dominance, control, and to be powerful. So this sets up a couple of things. It sets up a paradox where on one hand, men are savages who are borderline on exhibiting destructive behavior all the time. And according to Dobson and Eldridge, those characteristics are what they are. Yet men are also taught that they're supposed to be leaders, they're supposed to be influencers, and they're supposed to have authority in homes. They're supposed to be supervisors at work while taking care of kids and stuff like that. So on one hand, men are completely out of control. They can't control their need to destroy things and be adventurous, or they can't control their desire to screw anything that walks. But on the other hand, Men are supposed to be the head of the house. They're supposed to be the leaders of the youth group or supervisors in their jobs. It's a strange paradox. And when you think about it, this kind of mindset reveals the patriarchal heart of the evangelical approaches to masculinity and sex. Why would somebody think that this creature that I was just describing as a savage monster with an uncontrollable sex drive who likes to destroy things, uh, leap off airplanes or bungee jump on cliffs, why would I say that they would also be a natural leader in their homes, in society, or in politics, or, or other places where there needs to be some form of leadership and control? The answer is simple. Colonial patriarchal control. Christians keep pushing this commentary all the time. They use apologetics. They use certain forms of exegesis. And they use those things to indicate that patriarchy is biblical. 
They quote scripture. They quote theologians. They draw on their personal revelations from their prayer times and other pastors from the SBC or churches with large followings online to back their stances on these things. They do all this while telling their fellow men that they're completely out of control without Christ or without a wife or another woman or a concubine. That's a paradox. It's a paradox that shows how patriarchal evangelicalism actually is. The church in a sense describes two sides of a coin that don't match up at all. And yet to evangelical men who swear by these teachings, these kind of men should be in charge because they're adventuring, they want sex, and to them the ends justify the means. So they do whatever they want until what they do leads to victory in Jesus' name. This kind of leadership to them makes sense, and no wonder folks like Corporal Donnie were able to be leaders of young adult groups, even as flawed as they are. And of course, if they can at least keep the weaker flaws hidden, even better. When you zoom out and look at this aspect of purity culture and how men and their roles in evangelical and Christian communities are formed and appointed, it's disturbing. It's sick. I need to take a break. I'll come back with some discussions as to what kind of consequences and damages occur because of all of this. Beep. So we understand the paradoxes of sexual teaching while connecting how they relate to patriarchy. How does this relate to who gets put into leadership in church and society? According to Kristen Dumay, the author of Jesus and John Wayne, natural leaders are men who display characteristics of hypersexuality. These men should be leaders who give lessons on how to do life and live for Jesus and how to make our faith our own. All this relates to the reasons why Doug Wilson, Ravi Zacharias, Tim Keller, Mark Driscoll, and Donald Trump are celebrated by Christians with conservative politics. All this leads to unhealthy structures of authority and leadership. The other thing to note is that if you don't display these aggressive, tough, victorious, macho, adventurous characteristics of manliness, you feel like you failed to live up to your identity in Christ. You feel like you can't reach God's standards, and in a sense, you feel out of place in a church setting. If God designed you to be wild at heart, a knight or a video game hero that can shoot the demos, commit Grand Theft Auto or kick turtles to save the princess and have a sexual relationship with her, and if you don't see yourself as that, then can you even be who you are when you go to an evangelical or a conservative church? I guess given that I'm a cisgender man who's mixed race, I'm part white and part Asian, I should have been able to live up to the standards of purity culture for men. And while I don't have a full grasp of the LGBTQ community and how they struggle to meet the standards of purity culture they were taught in church, I am able to empathize because of my neurodiverse identity and struggles of racism for being part Asian. I've always felt out of place because of autism and dyspraxia, and I had to hide those things while going to church in Brandon and in my hometown in Winnipeg. I also wasn't into sports, cars, or UFC, but I partially made up for it by working with Linux and having a decent knowledge of sound production and PowerPoint, but still I never fit in. I was playing retro video games at home while they were hiking and camping and kayaking. I was always writing music while other kids were playing Ultimate. And when I told leaders I wanted to be a CCM artist or web designer, they advised me to join the army or be a missionary instead of sitting in front of a mixing board or a computer. 
Then when I injured my back, I realized I had no chance of ever living up to the evangelical standards of masculinity. That broke me hard, and it still breaks my heart today, knowing I had to give up so much just to be free and be who I am. The other thought I want to get into before closing things off is how the system of patriarchy punishes people. This punishment, it's determined by the way a system like purity culture prioritizes people. We see this in how America punishes black people versus white people. Black person commits a small crime, decades in jail. Rich white dude is part of a mob on January 6th, 2021. A few weeks or a few months in jail and then they go free. So we see who the system prioritizes, and it's the same in purity culture. Everyone is affected by this regardless of gender because of complementarianism and the fact that evangelicals only see male and female as acceptable genders. So, we have this system where men are set up to be sexual predators and monsters. To be a man means to be aggressive, to break things, and to be dominant. And when men cross the line when it comes to sexual purity, they're told to apologize in front of the church, and then they're told to go and sin no more. They're told to think about what they did and to stop trying to be impure in the future. And the funny thing is that these kind of sexual sins are proof that these are the kind of leaders the evangelical church wants. When a man does something sexual, let's say Ravi Zacharias does something sexual with another woman in his church, He'll be told to repent and stop sinning. But his actions are not seen as a systematic problem. But when a woman has sex outside of marriage and everyone knows about it, not only does she confess in front of the church, but she's seen as a prostitute and is cast out for being a sexual deviant and a stumbling block. You don't believe me? Check the book of Proverbs. It's littered with passages that tell men that adulterous women will lead many members of the church straight to hell. From this text, those in authority who kick a woman out for having sex, call her seducer, tempter, siren, succubus, and other horrible names, if women want sex for pleasure, they're told they aren't normal and there's something wrong with them and they have to go for counseling. That's not what women do. They want sex for intimacy. And women are always told these things. They're told that women are not the sexual aggressor and that it's the man's job to be the initiator and aggressor in a sexual relationship. If men do it, yes, it's awful. Don't do it again. And guess what? We want you in leadership. You're buff. You're aggressive. You're strong. You're good with a gun. You have influence. You're victorious. And you have a hyper-masculine sex drive. But women? One act of falling for sexual temptation, they're not accepted by God anymore. The sexual sin of a man is proof of a kind of leader that is needed in these systems of purity culture. It proves that they can be forceful, but at the same time, they can also be protective. If a man is sexual and he succeeds as a leader, it's still seen as national strength, which means the damaging characteristics of their aggression or sexuality can be thrown at a group who, in the evangelical or political mind, deserves it. Of course, with Bill Clinton, this wasn't counted as much because he didn't fit the evangelical standards of purity culture or masculinity, and Christians didn't think he was a good leader back in the 90s. If a Christian man is not masculine, according to all the standards that were outlined in this episode, that man is considered a threat. He's considered a threat to himself, 
and to everyone around him. So, to summarize, if men commit heterosexual sin because they're a man by God's design, being a man who is aggressive, a conqueror, a knight, and a sexual monster, they get to repent, they get to be saved by Christ, and then they become the leader of a church or the White House. But if the sin is homosexual, or if a man isn't aggressive into sports, he votes Democrat, he's not into adventuring, he doesn't watch UFC, he doesn't play violent video games, if he isn't handy or into tractors or combines or operates construction equipment, guess what? He's a sexual tarnish to the evangelical church. Think about how far this goes when it comes to men who subscribe to purity culture but commit sexual assault or are sexually abusive to their wives. The church says that men should repent and be held accountable, but still, boys will be boys. The church still believes that men who still have this beast can be used when the time for that aggression is needed. It's terrible when one really looks at this. According to a few authors I've read throughout the last year, men in purity culture need to commit impure acts in order to lead a pure country or pure society into prosperity and paradise. This is gross and toxic, and it shows the consequences of this mix of sexual aggressive male monstrosity teachings that become deeply rooted into men's identity as followers of Christ. You know, some say that purity culture is rape culture. Guess what? It's true. When putting everything discussed together, purity culture sets up situations where men are supposed to be conquering, colonizing, warmongering, seed planting, but destructive berserkers. By being that, evangelical churches believe that this is what God made men to be. Even when the harmful, rapish sexuality comes into play, it's still forgiven because the sexual act is included for what God meant for men to be. Everyone is going to be damaged by the system because it elevates people with unhealthy sexuality to leadership roles. It tells people that there's standards to live up to that only a few people will achieve. And any woman or person of a different gender who fails to meet the system requirements is going to be subject to its violence and understanding of leadership and authority. It's problematic and shows why people who have problems overcoming purity culture even are trying to get over it years later. Let's jump back to the story of my time under Corporal Donnie's leadership. Not even a month after he released his book, the Path of the Warrior, he came out as someone who couldn't win. He came out as someone who couldn't be victorious and couldn't handle his God-given authority in front of the entire church. He confessed that he suffered PTSD and that between preparing lessons for young adults at the church, he was drinking alcohol to numb the pain of what happened to him overseas in Afghanistan. And yet, he had the huge brass ones to make a toxic masculine statement before leaving the church to start a business in the United States. I will never forget Corporal Donnie's last words for me and my youth group. He told us there are no cowards in heaven. That statement laced with the church's purity culture has stuck with me until this day. Now that you've heard this part of my story, I just want to say that irregardless of the toxic masculinity 
that Corporal Donnie taught me and my young adult group back in the day, I still admire what Donnie did to admit that he needed support from the church because of what happened to him while he was in the war. But I think he left the church because admitting he was weak pushed him to believe that he was a fraud and that he was a blemish to the church that we attended. Because he did not fit the evangelical definition of Christian masculinity, he felt like he had to leave. Kyle Howard has a challenge for the kind of thinking we discussed today. He indicates that there is a place, even a need, for Christians to produce content for couples who are married that would help them develop and flourish in their sex lives. And there are resources out there such as The Great Sex Rescue by Sheila Gregor. I mean, Wives Towards Husbands have a few books here and there, but Husbands Towards Wives? There are very little resources that I can think of off the dome that are available. Howard continues to state that the problem with Christian sexual teaching sans purity culture is that most content published is about solely male delight. Christians need to have their minds renewed about sex as many have been heavily influenced by both secular media as well as a form of Christian stoicism intended to keeping them pure, quote-unquote, via being asexual till marriage, where dormant sex drives are supposed to be switched on during the wedding night. That's not how it works. A man's renewal and or cleanse will not happen through creating a Christian expression of the world's sexual misguidedness that aims towards male sexual gratification at a woman's expense. The church needs to operate according to a radically different sexual philosophy and practice. So based on Kyle's challenge, what do we do with all this? Sadly, I do not have a clear picture of how to stop the damage, and like many of you listening, if you agree with me, we all wish we could just snap our fingers and the system will fix itself. All I can do is come up with a few thoughts. For one, we need to bring abusers in the church to justice while spending our compassion on victims of purity culture abuse. The other thing the church must do is not take love and forgiveness too far when it comes to anyone committing a sexual act where it harms someone else and has no consent. The thing is that we misunderstand love and forgiveness sometimes. For example, when Jesus said, forgive, quote-unquote, he never meant say nothing and ignore how men exercise their aggression, authority, and sexuality against another person, especially a young woman, someone else's wife, or someone marginalized who attends that church. When Jesus said serve one another, he didn't mean church members can demand what they want and then exploit the love for others. And lastly, Loving and serving one another, it has to be contextualized within a relationship of brotherhood and sisterhood instead of heads over people versus servants or toxic relationships of fathers over children, or even the disgusting use of the umbrella module of church headship. There needs to be honesty, there needs to be accountability, and there needs to be responsibility when awful abuse happens. There cannot be silence in order to allow harm, violence, and injustice that stems from purity culture to continue and keep occurring. Unfortunately, the men who want to be gentle, forgiving, kind, and have a desire to integrate love and care of Christ into Christian relationships, we all still have a long way to go in terms of finding a helpful solution that will edify the church. 
But at least the problem is there, and hopefully with prayer and advice from Christians and counselors outside of this system, we can develop a solid solution to bringing Christians together in unity without purity culture. I'm sorry this episode was really long. Thank you very much for listening to Spiritually Challenged, and I also want to thank Bradley Onishi from Straight White American Jesus for inspiring me to do this series. If you'd like to keep up with the podcast, check out the show notes in your podcast app. God bless you. Stay in touch. Peace out.